to a new episode of the Soul Kitchen. I have a very special guest today, a person that I met in Costa Rica while living in Pachamama, a community in the jungle of uh, Costa Rica. Her name is Silva Steffler, and she's a behavioral scientist and modern-day mystic who blends research and evidence-based tools with the mysterious and the inevitable parts of life. She's also a facilitator of soulful playgrounds and an embodied wordsmith. I'm really curious to learn more about um, about all these things. So I'm so happy that you're here today, Silva. Thank you for having me, Jasper. It's a pleasure to see your big smile <laughs> and be here with you. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to, to have this conversation with you. So behavioral scientist and modern day mystic. Tell, tell me more. <laughs> Yes. So behavioral scientist, that's my official training. Um, that's what I've studied at university. That's what I then practice in a corporate setting. And behavioral science is all about understanding human behavior, understanding why we do the things that we do, um, understanding what we do repetitively, what are our habits, what are our patterns, but more specifically, what I love about behavioral science is that it tries to understand what are the things that we do that aren't actually in, in alignment with our goals, that aren't actually in, in alignment with what we want to be or to live or to experience. And so behavioral science dives deep into human biases, into what are the things that we repetitively do and that actually curtail our our actions and our and our intentions um and then modern day mystic um so i was looking up the definition of the word mystic and one definition that comes up in a lot of different dictionaries is um, someone who devotes their life to communing with the sacred to communing with God. And I find this definition interesting, but I feel like it only focuses on the goal or the outcome and not on what really is interesting to me about mysticism, which is the process. So a mystic devotes their entire life to understanding their inner processes and through practice, through ritual, through inquiry, really dives deep into their soul and into their psyche. And so I see mystics as kind of scientists of the soul, scientists of the inner words. And so there is something when I say this, when I hold these two poles of behavioral scientist and modern day mystic, where I almost feel like it's redundant to say the two because they point to exactly the same thing. But one of them focuses more on the outer world and the other one focuses more on the inner world. 
but I see both as scientists, I see both as rigorous researchers, and as identities that really devote their entire life to understanding our world and experimenting to uh, then share wisdom with the world. When you say it like this, it makes a lot of sense, even though I've never met um, behavioral scientists <laughs> and modern-day mystic before, so I never <laughs> knew about it. So how initially did you get interested in, in, in the human behavior? Why did you choose that path? Mm, beautiful. Um, <laughs> one thing that comes up to me straight away as you ask that question are my parents. Um, <laughs> and growing up in a household where I could see very well-intentioned people, people who loved each other a lot, and yet who were extremely good at hurting each other and themselves. And I, um, yeah, my, my parents often say that um, they were kids when they had me. And so I, I kind of feel like I grew up with other kids and um, I, I was an only child, uh, quite a precocious child. And very early on, I started asking myself, how is it that these wonderful people that I love so much and love each other so much can hurt themselves and each other so deeply and so consistently. Um, so that's where the, the inquiry started. And I remember spending so much time at school just observing people, trying to understand what they did and why they did it, looking at wider social dynamics of the different groups that existed at school and who related to whom and how did they change their identity and personality depending on who they were speaking to. So I... Yeah, the, the origin story tells me it was it had something to do with my parents and my family. But then every single time it expressed itself in in the way I was living in the world, it just felt like it was second nature. It's yeah. almost like it I was I was given this this mission to go and explore the the human. And since it started with your parents, can you tell a bit more mm -hmm. about them, where they're from, who they are, are they mm -hmm. still together? <laughs> Yes. Um, so my par my mother is French uh, and lives in Belgium. My dad is Italian, but from a German-speaking side of Italy. Um, so his mother tongue is German uh, and he lives in Italy at the moment. Uh, they met at the European Parliament. <laughs> they were both assistants there and they fell in love. Um They were never fully together and never fully apart throughout my whole life. And now um, at my <laughs> wise age of 28, I feel like in a way they're, they're finally kind of shifting to more of a, of a um, almost like traditional parent <laughs> model. Um, yeah, that's, that's how it yeah. stands right now. And what is your experience in, because um, you have parents from different nationalities, how has mm. that shaped you, if, if, if it has shaped you at all? Mm, beautiful. Yeah, I feel like identity and the concept of a home and a belonging is something that is really key in 
in my human experience. And it's a question more than an answer, but it's a question that I've been carrying for my whole life of where do I belong and where do I come from? Um, because not only do I have parents from different nationalities, but I was born and raised in Belgium, which is this third nationality. Um, and in the same way as I was saying that my dad is Italian, but uh, mother tongue German, my mom is French, but she's originally Corsican. So from an island where the national language is actually an Italian dialect. And so there's there's a lot of complexity, even just on, in the geographical and cultural background of my parents. And then there's this additional point of having been born and raised in, in a third country, in a third culture. And that's really defined how I see myself in the world, because I always understood that I don't belong to just one place. And... In this not belonging to just one place, I was able to really navigate a lot of different worlds and kind of learn the codes and structures of each of those worlds and very easily fit in, like what I, what I speak about it as a, as a chameleon. Um, and then very swiftly being able to change to a completely different set of beliefs, of values, of rules. Um, and so I see myself more than belonging to one place. I see myself as a bridge between different places, between different traditions, between different cultures. And this then came up also in my work as my deep passion for anything that is interdisciplinary, anything that doesn't seem like it fits together, like science and mysticism. Um, and using my life and using my existence as a way to bridge worlds that seem uh, disparate to start with. As you mentioned, you like to be a bridge and you already explained mm -hmm. how your interest in behavioral science started, mm -hmm. namely with your parents. But how did you enter the path of mysticism and at what age did you start exploring mm -hmm. that path? Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Um, so there's, there's when I started in terms of when I started with kind of traditional mystic approaches. Uh, and then there's when I started in terms of when the first questions, mystical questions started emerging. And so I'm going to start with the latter. Um, and what comes up to me is an image of being five years old in the back of a car in Corsica, driving to a beach, looking out of the window and asking myself, what happens when I die? And going into this big 30-minute <laughs> long reflection around what is death and what happens to my body and my mind and what I define as me when I am no longer. And entering this kind of vortex of, of questioning around death and feeling both exhilarated and totally terrified by, by this, this reflection. And it's one that I brought back many times actually in the following years um and and so now I can trace that back to there was already those deep questions those deep existential questions that were bubbling up in in my little body as a five-year-old um now in terms of um yeah more practices that are more easily related to to mysticism so I started meditating seven years ago um, and 
completely fell in love with it. Um, I still remember the first time that I was guided through meditation. I by chance landed in this kind of mindfulness training group. Um, and it's as if I was just coming home to a place that I knew existed, but I had forgotten how to get to. Um, and very quickly that turned into a daily meditation practice that I've kept going until today and that I keep on um, holding every single day. Um, yeah, there's there's been rituals, there's been courses, there's been some therapy pieces that have felt mystical. Um, so yeah, I'd say that from the age of five, I remember asking the deep mystical existential questions. From seven years ago, I remember bringing that into my consciousness and um, yeah, having a little bit more awareness around what I was actually doing. And were your parents already interested in mysticism or mm. did you come up with it yourself? Um, I would say my dad, not at all. <laughs> um, he's a, he, he prefers simple things. He's like, he likes nature. He likes hanging out with friends. He likes watching sports. Whenever things get a little bit too deep or emotional, he's like, oh God, like, is this really needed? So I, I learned from him maybe the, the love and devotion to nature and simplicity, uh, which I think are very important for mysticism, but definitely not the more existential parts of it. Uh, on my mum's side, um, I definitely feel like there's, there's something in her that, that touches mysticism as well. She's a beautiful writer. She goes really deep in her writings uh, she's got a fantastic way with words. She was a journalist, so really has this inquiry in her. Uh, but I think, like me, that evolved mostly um, in, in depth, that evolved mostly in, in the past decade. I, I see. So your mother has some, some mystical interest and your father not, not so much. <laughs> and you mentioned one of the existential questions you're wondering was like, mm. yeah, what does death mean or how does death mm. look like? I recently read a book on um, shamanistic teachings from uh, Carlos Castaneda. Mm -hmm. And um, it talks about using death as an advisor because death mm. is kind of always walking next to you, right? So it can inform your decisions. So in your case, to what extent does death serve as an advisor to you? And to mm -hmm. what extent does it inform you about your decisions in life? <laughs> mm, that's beautiful. And it reminds me of a of a talk that I gave to uh, students at the University of Alberta, where uh, this dear friend of mine asked me to give a talk on any topic that I was interested in. And I ended up doing a whole talk about death and the power of death in getting to know ourselves and and feeling life more fully. Um, and there I, I brought different approaches. And, and one of the approaches that was present in that talk was exactly that of using death as an advisor of um, this idea of momento mori, uh, which in Latin means remember, remember you die, um, which can be a, a very strong compass in our lives. Um, yeah. Hmm. 
So in my own experience at this moment, death is teaching me a lot about the impermanence of life. And it's teaching me about really giving myself fully to whatever I encounter, whatever relationship I encounter, whatever experience I encounter, without grasping onto the illusion that I can control it in some way, control how long it's going to last and and how far it's going to go. Um, and that's something that is very connected as well for me to the, the concept of trust, of trusting life by knowing we will die and that when we die is not in our hands anyway. And I just want to bring here one more piece of, I already shared with you my, the kind of landscape that I was growing up in and another kind of variable or, or another, um, detail of that of that um family constellation was that because my parents were kids themselves and because they were still figuring out a lot of stuff there wasn't a lot of structure and so I created my own structure I created my own rules I created my own system that made me feel safe which at the time I believe really supported me and was important for my survival but when I reached adulthood, I realized that a lot of those rules that I had created had actually become prisons. And there was a lot of control around it. And so the, the journey of adulthood for me so far has been really about letting go those rules, about letting go those safety mechanisms that I created for myself to feel safe, to feel held. And so remembering that I will die and using death as an advisor every day just takes my hand and tells me, just trust a little bit more. Just let go of, of one more little layer of what you thought you needed to feel safe. And so what? Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I just wanted to, yeah, to say that. And in that, I found a lot of joy and fear yeah so what type of rules and safety mechanisms are you mm. talking about that you maybe have let go mm. yeah one that comes up is the need to structure my days to the second <laughs> um which might not be your typical understanding of a kid but I still remember having these schedules of what my week would look like. And I would write who I would spend lunch with. And I would write down all of my different classes that day and write down how much time I would need for each homework. And it was really this, this very rigid, beautiful structure. Um, maybe, maybe it goes back to some of my very German origins and <laughs> my Italian side of the family. Um, but yeah, this this real structuring of time, um, which was a way to control life, which was a way to feel like I I knew what was going to happen and therefore I was safe. And I saw myself take that into my university years. I saw that I saw myself take that into my first job, and now I'm at a point where. 
I don't have a boss. <laughs> I am my own boss. And so I get to decide how I spend my time. And what was interesting is that the start of this journey, I tried to implement exactly those same systems of like, okay, Monday we do this and Tuesday we do this and very rigid, like hour by hour schedules and realizing that I was burning myself out. But now I couldn't even blame it on someone else, on, on a boss or on an institution or on, on some kind of um, learning program. And so the, the last year as as for, as it pertains for this specific example has been a real experimentation with actually how how do i find the right balance between structure and flow how do i also create space for um spontaneity and for creativity to just arise freely in in my time i really like it as an example because um uh, time is a topic I'm, I'm thinking about, thinking about nowadays. There's this um, the Guardian journalist Eric Berkerman, and he wrote a book Four Thousand Weeks, mm. because that's the average number of weeks we have in in life. And in the past, he was a productivity junkie, uh, reading about time management, time efficiency. Mm. But then he found out that the more efficient you become, the more work you actually have to do. <laughs> At some point, he took a step back, like what is actually a meaningful way of spending time? And he says that mm. it's important to focus on a few things that matter to you and then let go of the rest. Mm. Um, but having said that, I've noticed when I let go a bit more about my own planning of mm. like what to do next, sometimes my environment seems to wonder like, hey, what are you up to? Like what's next? Family mm. and friends. Um, so how do you uh, experience that in your own life? And, and where does that come from when people get a bit nervous when when you don't yeah when you stop planning mm. Mm. yeah i i mean i feel like it feeds into a a deeper topic um that i've definitely had to navigate over the past few years especially when i decided to leave my corporate job in london um which came with a whole life that from the outside felt like um, success. Like she, she's made it, uh, she's ticked all the boxes. And I know that what helped me in the first stages of that is to not overshare about what was happening for me and to really keep some of my process, maybe the word is not secret, but more, more intimately connected to me knowing that at the end of the day, I don't owe anybody anything about what I'm doing, about how I choose to spend my days and my life. Um, I'm a recovering people pleaser <laughs> and <laughs> someone who loves to fit in and loves to be appreciated and seen and accepted. And so that was probably one of the deepest initiations of my life to no longer follow the rules that I had learned to, to soak in and to um, excel within. Um, I've always been very good, as I was saying, in, in this like chameleon spirit of learning what's expected of me and achieving it and overachieving it. And so taking a step back and really sitting in that question of what do I want 
wasn't only carrying the weight of going inside myself and asking myself what I want, but also was the inevitable, the inevitable process of noticing how much of my life was based on what I thought other people wanted from me. And noticing all the fears that came with that. The fears of, will I still be loved if I go a different way? Will I still be connected? Will I still be part of a, of a tribe and a community if I do things differently? But there was always something deeper that was guiding me. And I don't know if it was intuition, if it was just trust in myself, if it was just the fact, this like deep, deep knowing that I couldn't do any different but to follow my own truth. And that really, whenever I was betraying my own truth for the sake of being liked by others, I wasn't actually doing anyone a favor. Because then I was being dishonest to myself and I was being dishonest to others. And now three years after this process has started of leaving my corporate job and leaving love London and completely shifting the way that I live and, and love and experience life, I'm noticing that not only was stepping towards my own truth and my my own longing and my own desire not only was that the most healing thing i've ever done for me but it also seems to have been the most beautiful gift i've ever given to the people around me so how did other people benefit from this because sometimes with mm. centric philosophy or spirituality mm. you start to focus more on your own needs and desires Mm -hmm. So it could be seen as egotistic or egocentric. So how did other people benefit from this? <clears throat> well, one thing that I'm seeing is that it's serving as an inspiration that things can be different. And so I'm not in any way saying that people should do the same thing that I did. <laughs> um, I also see a lot of immaturity in the ways that I actually led that transition of there was moments where I just yeah, where there was some some extremism of I went into the extreme pleasing and now I wanted to go into the extreme non-pleasing. And so th there was definitely, my path wasn't perfect, but what I saw that it brought to others is just a different model, is an example of how things could be done differently. And it's just a seed that's planted that allows them to ask their own question of what do they actually want in their life? And how is the life that they're living supporting that? And how is it not? And so we're almost back to, the, to how I, what I described about what is behavioral science. Behavioral science really is about that, is defining what is it that we want and how our actions, our behaviors, our patterns not aligning to this deeper, wider purpose. Um, okay. Yeah. So you serve as a mirror for others because they start to reflect mm. more about their own desires and have you also experienced a certain friction when you step more into your own life 
yes, definitely. Uh, there were some friendships that were broken and then actually patched up again, interestingly. Uh, there was, at least for a first time, a lot of friction with my family. And what I realized is that it had something to do with their own fear of uh, seeing me change and not knowing what was going to happen. But mostly, I think it came from my fear, of my fear of them not accepting a new version of me and therefore me creating distance and pushing them out saying, you wouldn't understand anyway. And so interestingly, we, we often think that the friction would come from the outside, or at least that's the fear, but it's our own fear that, or at least in my, in my experience, it was my own fear that pushed people away. And that almost was... How can I say it? I, I want to go back to what you said about, especially when we go into spiritual work or if we go into self-development, it can seem very self-centered. And not only can it seem very self-centered, it can be very self-centered. And I know I've fallen many times in my journey into the trap of, let me just dig into myself for the rest of my life. And let me just chase after my shadows and understand my, my patterns and my wounds and, and how my parents have destroyed me and, and how my friends are not supporting me. And there's almost this, this addiction to a cycle of, of going and digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And that can, in my experience, that when I went too deep in that and when I stopped reconnecting to actually what what is in my world and integrating with the pieces that already existed, um, I was actually disconnecting myself. And I was, yeah, I, I ended up in places of, of confusion, of feeling like I, I didn't belong anywhere. Um, that was then creating this, yeah, this pushing away from other people and this almost imposing myself almost with aggression rather than out of alignment with myself. So I, I feel like there's there's two ways, right? There's asking yourself what you really want and allowing yourself to uncover that so you can come closer to it and so you can be in deep alignment with yourself. And then for your actions to be an expression of the deep alignment and connection to yourself. And that becomes a gift to the world. And then there can be almost a rebellious, like, challenging, activist, somewhat violent way of doing that, which is to shut everyone out and to say, fuck all of you. I'm going to do my thing. I'm only going to do my thing and I don't care about anybody. Um, but then it almost feels like actions become a retaliation and become a, hold this energy of aggression. I see. What I like about what you say is when you evolve yourself, there's certain fear that maybe people will reject mm -hmm. you and then you create distance yourself. So how have you gone through that fear to make sure to show up in your old world as a new version of yourself. Mm -hmm. 
I'm going to say continued integration. (laughs) And that means for me, the way that's looked like is going into my my portals of expansion, as I call them. So whether that's a course, whether that's a retreat, whether that's a ceremony, whether it's a, it's a phase of meditation, whether it's a, a travel and exploration somewhere, and really being in the, in the depth of the experience in that moment, and then always coming back to the village, as Campbell would say it in the hero's journey, but I, I, as a difference to the hero's journey, I don't see it as a you go travel the world and at the end of your life you come back to the village and share your gifts. The way it supported me is to every single time I've gone in a deep process to then come back to the village and integrate and ask myself, how do I bring together these new pieces and the old pieces, not only of other people, but of myself? so that I don't create this big gap between who I used to be and who I am today. So continued integration is important. And you mentioned that one of your portals of expansion is travel. So I'm Mm -hmm. curious, what role does travel play in your life? Mm. So I see myself as a life experimenter. (laughs) So maybe that comes from being a chameleon and being a bridge and having been born between different cultures and so on. Uh, But I love to experience different landscapes and ways of living. And so traveling for me has always been one of my favorite ways of doing my research around human behavior of just going somewhere and fully sinking into a new culture, a new way of living, a new environment, and understanding what are the codes that people play by here. And to see what emerges in me when I play by those codes. And what can I learn about myself that is new, but also how can I see more of my blind spots, more of the things that I take for granted that I think are truth, but that actually in this new context aren't truth. And so obviously they are relative and not absolute. Um, And so, yeah, I see travel not only as an external travel, but as a deep inner travel, Um, whether there are spiritual or self-development components to travel or not. I feel like simply immersing myself in a different context brings me incredible amounts of insight so travel challenges you about what you perceive to be the truth uh, mm-hmm. and uh, your perception of truth changes and can you share a bit about your your literal travels i mean we met in in costa rica but <laughs> what did you come to costa rica when when i came to costa rica what what made you go to costa rica okay um a romantic relationship (laughs) um I love people and I love love and um I was very intrigued by a beautiful person that had just moved to Costa Rica and who invited me to join him and I had already been once to Costa Rica actually um and it's one of the two places in the world that when I left that very first time I knew I was going to come back 
I didn't know when and how, but I, I knew Costa Rica had more to teach me. The other place was New York, interestingly. Um, but yeah, so I, I went back to Costa Rica to explore this romantic relationship, uh, which then turned into a whole year of exploration, of exploration not only of Costa Rica, the country, but exploring relationship, exploring different ways of relating. Um, this partner had two kids already, so it was also a way of exploring being a parent for the first time. Um, he was building a um, yeah, a beautiful project in Costa Rica, so I got to really ground myself in the realities of also living and being part of the of the landscape of Costa Rica, but it also brought me to a lot of very beautiful experiences and friends like you, um, moments in, in Pachamama where we met this beautiful intentional community that was right around the corner from where I was living. Um, and yeah, it, it, even though it was one location of travel, I feel like I had many travels within the, the universe of Costa Rica. <laughs> Talking about community, so there's this community that you're talking mm. about, there's Pachamama, then you also have mm. been involved in uh, ISTA. Mm. Uh, is that something you want to share more about in regard of the topic uh, relationships that you just talked about? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I feel like that's opening a whole new universe. Um, but yeah, let's go there. What What would you like to... So for people that have never heard about it, what is ISTA? Mm. Hi guys, Silba here. I'm stopping the episode for a moment to share a word of caution. In the next section, I will share my experience with ISTA, the International School of Temple Arts. In this episode, I will mostly focus on my positive experience attending my first training with the school. However, my words are neither an endorsement nor the promotion of ISTA as a school. Across the years, I have heard of a wide range of participants' experiences, including more challenging ones. My intention in this episode is to share the power of exploring the field of sexuality in a conscious way and to tell my own story on this topic. ISTA is neither the only school nor necessarily the one I would recommend studying with. As I share later on, there are many possible avenues that can be found through research, asking people, contacting teachers, etc. If you have any questions, you can find me on Instagram. I would love to support you in your process. Now, let's get back to the episode. So, ISTA is the International School of Temple Arts, um, and it's... Uh, um, school that brings together um, Tantra, uh, shamanism, and a range of different uh, spiritual traditions, and has at its core uh, the use and cultivation and exploration of sexual energy as a way to heal our own lives. Uh, heal our relationships and heal our connection to ourselves. That's beautiful. And and what is the, what has it done for you? What what did it mean for you? Yeah, and I just want to add to that. That's my own definition. I'm not reading ah, it anywhere else. Um, 
that's that's how I understand it. Um, what it has done for me. So yeah, that's, that's an interesting, um, an interesting path led me there. So I, I shared before that I've been meditating for seven years and I've been exploring a lot of different traditions, um, of spirituality, of mysticism. Um, And what I started realizing when I was still living in London, leading my corporate life, is that one thing that was really missing from my spirituality or my development was sexuality. And I realized that specifically after uh, a very important relationship in my life ended, and I had uh, two years and a half by myself where I chose to take the time to really understand what it is that I wanted in relationship and how I wanted to connect and in that time I also connected with some other people almost as a as an experimentation and I realized that whenever it went into the sexual realms there was there was a lot of um blockages and a lot of shame and a lot of uh miscommunication and a lot of unconsciousness as well of I felt like that was one of the spaces where all of my spiritual training actually went out of the window and so I started asking myself why why is it the case that sexuality doesn't have space in all those explorations I've done so far or how is it that in my experience there seems to be a conflict between them and so I just typed into google conscious sexuality (laughs) No idea what that was. I was just like, I want to explore sexuality and I want to do so in a conscious way because I had found sex parties and I realized that wasn't the kind of spaces I wanted to go into. And then ISTA popped up. Um, And so I had never heard about ISTA. I didn't know what it was. Um, I found their website. I thought it was a little bit too woo-woo and and spiritual and weird lingo. And I was like, okay, interesting. Let, Let me put it aside. And then I ended up continuing my exploration by going to a tantric speed dating, actually, in London, um, which was guided by someone who's now a, a, a dear sister called Arctara. And she just held this beautiful space where we got to meet each other, to meet other people in a very intimate setting. And there was no nudity involved. There was no um, central touch involved. But there was a deeper way of connecting. There was eye gazing. There was having deep conversations. There was holding each other's hands. And I realized, wow, like this is what I've been waiting for. We're looking for this this deep element within relating. Um, And then quite magically, as things happen, I then very rapidly met three people who each had in in different capacities had heard about ISTA. One of them was about to go. One of them had gone. The other one had heard about it. And so all of a sudden it was very present in my, in my experience. Um, And so I, I I told myself, I know I'm, I'm going to go and do this, this training one day. Um, And then the pandemic started and then we had the first six months of lockdown And as soon as this first lockdown ended, I decided to sign up to one of their trainings that they had in Austria and attended uh, their level one. So they have three different levels or layers that each have a different focus. 
And the level one is all about, again, in my own words, um, finding, finding, again, the innocence and power that is held in our own sexual energy and noticing how the innocence and power of that sexual energy has been corrupted in many ways through many conventions and ideas and um, models that we have of what sex should be or what relationships should be. And so for me, that one week of training with ISTA was just rediscovering the, the beauty and the freedom of being a sexual being, of um, feeling that energy in my body, of noticing all the patterns of I had around how I was relating to, to other people. Um, and it gave me immense amounts of energy. It gave me a lot of tools and practices, um, very ed educational tools and practices to then bring into uh, spaces of relating that I then brought into dating and uh, my workshops and my friendships. Um, yeah, and so it was, it was definitely a very important stage in my journey. It sounds like it has been very important. And um, I'm curious, you mentioned the two words, innocence and power of sexual mm -hmm. energy. Can you elaborate more on these two words? Yes. Um, so I'm going to start with innocence. Um, I feel like for a lot of people, and I'm going to speak for me myself <laughs> back then, there was almost it felt wrong to to put in the same space sexual energy and innocence. It's almost as if they didn't fit together. There was something that felt inherently dirty for me about sexual energy or taboo or to be hidden. And I think it had a lot to do with, even though I didn't have a religious upbringing, I, my Italian family has a lot of religious values um, and a lot of hiding around sexuality and um, what happens in the bedroom and even just the, the simplicity of of watching tv and watching series and whenever two people would get into bed we would start seeing them kissing and then the screen would go blank and it would be the next scene as if that was a part that we couldn't witness from the outside that there was there was something that that wasn't okay about us seeing that like we can see them brushing their teeth but we can't see them having sex um and in my own family history there's also a big history of betrayal and cheating um of relationships that were broken or sometimes not broken but that were in a way stained by uh, extra uh, marital, I don't know if that's a word, uh, extra conjugal relationships and affairs. Um, and so I always had this, this intuition in me that there was something about sex that was really powerful, but I also witnessed it bringing a lot of pain to people in my family. And so the, the piece of innocence is about returning almost to the innocence that we had when we were kids 
and we were discovering our own bodies and touching our noses and being like oh my god I have a nose and feeling tingles all over our bodies and then touching our finger and being like oh my god I have a finger and then touching our genitals and being like oh my god I have genitals and <laughs> the innocence in that of it's it's just another body part and yes it has incredible amounts of nervous endings that mean that there is a lot of pleasure located there but why does it have to be taboo and um yeah and coming back to that innocence of well i feel pleasure in my body and that's beautiful so it also has to do the innocence with with breaking the taboo and that is just mm. part of the human experience mm-hmm. i think that's really fascinating and you also mentioned that it's about deprogramming certain beliefs or conditions mm-hmm. around sexuality mm-hmm. um, so why is it that ista is so life transformational for mm-hmm. for many people yeah Hmm. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it to that second element, which so I, I mentioned innocence and power. And in my experience, there is a lot of power in sexual energy, not only because it is a very strong energy and because it is a life creating energy. That's the energy that uh, propagates the species. Um, it's the energy of of life it's the energy of creativity uh, there's a lot of uh systems in which uh sexual energy is seen as the same as creative energy uh but i would also say that sexual energy has a lot of power because it is extremely taboo and because it hasn't been spoken about and it's been hidden and it's been repressed in a lot of ways and so any container, any experience that is going to bring to the forefront the energy of sexual energy, the the, yeah, the energy of, of, of sexual energy is gonna is gonna bring up a lot. Is gonna be highly transformational, and it can it can be extremely triggering. Um, but inherently, it's gonna bring up all of the force all of the power that we have learned to repress and push away. And so in my experience, it was reconnecting to that power that I had pushed away. And while I was at ISTA, I had just memories of how freely I used to just like swim in my own sexual energy when I was a kid and didn't know what it was. So, for example, I have these memories of dancing. I love dancing and I've always loved dancing. And I remember <laughs> whenever we'd go on holiday, my parents would lose me. All of a sudden, they wouldn't know where I was anymore. And they would find me in the middle of a crowd with some uh, street musicians just dancing in front of everyone. And when I connected that experience now, I just remember feeling these like flows of energy, of warm energy in my body and these tingling sensations in my hands and my feet and my legs. And I can now relate to that as that was sexual energy. That was life force. That was creative energy that was just flowing in my body. And it was power. It was the power of inspiring others just by expressing this energy, just by being in in the fullness of it. And so what this experience of ISTA allowed me to do is to reconnect to that power, to reconnect to 
the parts of me that I thought weren't welcome because they were taboo um, and to really connect once more with, with the depth of that and the force of that. So it sounds like that a lot of sexual energy is repressed in, in normal society. Mm -hmm. and it opens when you go to Istan that it, it triggers a lot, but it also transforms. I really want to go. I've, I haven't re registered yet, <laughs> but I'm really curious. I'm also a bit nervous because it's a it's a new space, right? So mm. I'm also a bit nervous to enter, but I think it can uh, can mean a lot uh, for me. So yeah. I think I, got, oh, go ahead. I I, I just want to add something here for any listener that hasn't gone to ISTA or hasn't done any sexual work and is interested in exploring these spaces, because the as I shared, it's it's a very charged spaces and it's a very charged exploration, especially the more we've been disconnected to our own sexuality, the, the more it can bring up trauma, it can bring up deep seated issues. Um, and so my recommendation for anyone listening that is interested in going into these spaces is to not take it lightly, And to really see it as almost like a psychedelic journey. It's something that needs preparation. It's something that needs support. And it's something that needs a lot of integration. And I'm, I'm just saying this from a space of... If, if I had advice to give to my younger self <laughs> around this, it would really to not take it lightly and to get the support that I need and to understand that it's, it's a very rich and powerful space. And it's a very charged one that can bring up a lot. And, and also what I always, when, when people ask me where to start, I would definitely connect with, the facilitators in any such training, whether it's ISTA or other schools, to really be sure that you connect with the energy of that facilitator, that they inspire you, that you feel safe being led by them. Um, and if you don't, to not judge yourself and not push yourself and look for more gentle ways to enter that space. There's a lot of other ways of entering the world of sacred sexuality and conscious sexuality one of them is just through massage, for example. One of them is through mentoring and, and um, through just going to a workshop to start with. So I would just really invite spaciousness and slowness in that process because it's a highly, highly charged space. It's very arousing and very exciting. And yes, you will feel all this energy come up from the, 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 the um, caves that you had pushed it into and you have time. And the more time you take and the more you honor yourself in the process, the deeper you will go and the more you will be able to integrate that process into your life and actually allow it to blossom in your relationships and in your relationship to yourself. That's a beautiful uh, addition, not to take it lightly because uh, sometimes when you schedule something, maybe the day after you have like other stuff mm -hmm. to do. So also in terms of time, it, it's it's good to take some time out maybe after. Is that also what you're saying? Well, it can take, it can take the form that you need. Um, 
for some people it might look like time out for other people it may just look like having a trusted person they can speak to after the experience and whether that's a professional that can support them through the integration process whether that's a friend but just to make sure that there's a support system in place that allows them to to fully come back to earth and integrate the experience so that there isn't a um so there there isn't any dissonance in their system because mm-hmm. ista is for example as if we take this example ista is a very strong powerful experience and it's one week it's very short and a lot happens in one week and a lot happens in the body and a lot happens in relationship and there isn't really time to process during the week and so it often takes months for people to fully integrate the experience and to as I, as i was speaking before about whenever i have an experience i go back to the village and i try to integrate the old pieces of me and the new pieces of me this is i i would even put more the emphasis here on maybe you don't go back to the village but to to really create space so that the old you and the new experiences you've had can meet and can communicate and can together create a new reality so that you don't end up creating yeah dissonance in your system where there's one part that that is in an old paradigm and another part that's had all these experiences but doesn't know how to make sense of them because for instance in your example when you came back mm-hmm. after ista uh, what has changed in yourself or how did you get triggered what you had to process at the time mm-hmm. hmm Well, when I exited my first ISTA experience, I actually felt just a lot of life and a lot of joy and a lot of desire to connect with people. And I went straight to my dad's house, actually, in Italy, because um, I hadn't seen him in a long time. And we had really beautiful days where I felt a l- very confident in my ability to to be centered in myself, but also to to set my boundaries um and i felt like i was yeah i was able to communicate more freely um and then we met up with my mum as well so i had both of them but we did so in a context where we were at my friend's house a friend that is quite older than me that's actually my parents age so it was really interesting to be in 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 a dynamic where i was with my friends with my with my parents and to be able to continue to integrate that but that was for a short time and then i needed time alone again and so i left for the south of england i was in devon and i spent two weeks by myself just meeting people and experimenting with these new tools i was actually going on some dates um and uh bringing the different modalities i had learned like there's one conversation that you learn in in ista that's all about how to share your desires and your fears and share about your relationship status and the meaning that it would have to connect with that person and so i was going on tinder dates or bumble dates and <laughs> just being like hey before we start i think uh we should start with this framework and we should share about yeah where we're at what's our relationship status what what meaning does this date have for us what's our desires what's our fears and it was interesting because i was met with some awkwardness but a lot of um curiosity 
and actually people who were so relieved to be able to have a framework to finally settle in uh, in this whole dating environment. So it, re- it resonated with people. Hmm. Not initially, not always initially, but it always created a lot of spaciousness by the end. Because mm. for me, I don't have a lot of experience with it, but it can create spaciousness, but it can also feel a bit mechanical, like oh, these, mm. are my, these are my fears. So what is the <laughs> is a view or what is your view on this maybe mechanical approach to relating? Mm. The way I see it now is that there's a there's a goal and then there's where we're at and i feel like the goal is a completely open free flowing kind of love where you don't need to speak about boundaries and desires and fears because you're in full alignment with yourself and you're in full connection with the other and it's almost like the space speaks for you and you don't need to communicate and you're so aware and so present that none of those words are needed and you can be fully in the moment and at the same time in full respect of yourself and the other. Now, the reality is I'm very far from that. I don't know about other people, but I'm I'm still, when I am relating to other people, uh, I have blind spots. I have moments where I lose presence. I have moments where I fall into a story. I have desires I'm not speaking. I have fears I'm not speaking. Sometimes boundaries I'm not speaking. And so I see these frameworks not as something that you learn and apply your whole life, but as a practice ground to start thinking about the things that we tend to dismiss, maybe because we're scared, maybe because we haven't been taught to use them. Um, I've heard people, for example, say, oh, but if I I talk about my fears and desires at a first date, I'm going to break the magic. And my point on that is, well, maybe you're going to break something, but I'm not sure the term is magic because, okay, let's say you don't speak about your fears and desires. That first date goes really well. But in the back of your mind, you do have a desire. You know why you're there. You're there because you're looking for a long-time partner. And they're not expressing it, but what they're looking for is just someone to like sleep with a few times a week, but they actually don't want a deep connection. So you're not speaking about desires that are there. You're just you're just not sharing them. And so you might get to the third date and now you start expressing a little bit more in, in subtle ways of like, oh, I would love for us to go on holiday together. But then the other person's like, oh no, I don't want to go on holiday. <laughs> and so you've you've is that really was it magical until then? And then all of a sudden your world crashes? Or rather by bringing in the framework, by expressing your desires and fears, aren't you just being loyal to yourself and making sure that you're being honest to them about what you want? Um, so again, um, frameworks are not for life. They're tools to bring the emphasis on things that we are not used to in our societies to speak about, but that are important to mention so that there is no misunderstanding and so that we can truly be in alignment with ourselves and honest to the person in front of us. 
I see. So the frameworks can increase honesty and can avoid miscommunication or confusion uh, in the future. They can also be very fun, by yeah. the way. If, if you take them on a playful level, I mean, I, I really enjoy them because you, you, can, you can go in the framework and it being very sexy. I've yeah. never heard, I personally, and maybe that's just my own personality, but I find it so sexy when I hear someone in front of me be very clear about their boundaries, their fears, and their desires. I'm like, wow, like this person knows what, they're, they, what they want. And all of a sudden, I feel a lot safer in their company. Yeah, because they have a clarity of what they want. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's really interesting that we use these frameworks for all sorts of parts of our lives. But then in love, it's it's a kind of a mm -hmm. new thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think this was very, um, very helpful to get an understanding on, on ISTA and, uh, and, and, and love and relating. Before we move on to to next uh, topic, uh, is there anything else you want to share in this in this field? There's something <laughs> that's <laughs> around relating in love. Um. And maybe we don't expand on it because it's a whole other topic. But one thing that I've really learned in the past few years and that I really want to continue opening into is the difference between conditional love and ultimate love, specifically in relationship where conditional love is when we want to date someone because they have a special purpose in our lives. They bring us things. So, for example, we want to date someone because they make us feel good, because they're attractive, so we're happy to have them next to us, because they have a, a, a nice job, because... Um, we feel like our family will like them. So almost like choosing a partner for their perks and then getting attached to those perks. Um, and then where we're almost like using each other. <laughs> it's like, I'm using you, you're using me. Okay, we've got a deal. This is an agreement. You do what I want you to do and I do what you, what you want me to do. Um, a very contractual way of seeing relationship to this idea of ultimate love which has more of a spiritual component in it and sees love and relating more as an honoring of the space that's between us rather than benefiting any one person and so let's imagine we meet and we feel this beautiful energy between us we feel this creative energy between us and we feel like there's something that's bigger than just each of us when we come together. And moving towards ultimate love is instead of asking the question, what can the relationship do for me? To start asking the question, what can I do in honor of that love? What can I do in honor of that beautiful space between us? And what, in my own experience, I've learned by shifting that question 
is I've come very close to a lot of my wounds and all the ways that I hold myself back from receiving and giving love. But I've also found the inspiration to move beyond them, to see all the strategies that I have in place to continue benefiting from the relationship and instead shift to a real trusting of the love that's between us. Because the trust is the difficult part sometimes, right? To really Mm -hmm. trust it instead of like being addicted or holding on to. So how do you shift into this space of uh, trusting? Yes. I guess Uh, there's no quick, no shortcut probably. But I would say the, the path, in my experience, there is only one path. And the, the bridge between conditional love to ultimate love is self-love. And is giving yourself, giving myself the love that I'm looking for. And not using a relationship or using another person or using a project as a way to receive the love that I don't feel like I can give myself. And so it's, it's not a, it's not a one way road. It's definitely, it goes in cycles. And I know I have moments of still being in, in a conditional love. I still see myself like one, (laughs) one pattern that I have, for example, is, um, I'm very good at listening to people's words and understanding exactly what they want of me. And then I, I create this kind of little equation in my mind of with this person, I need to say these words. And so I'm going to receive love if I do that. And I've seen myself do that with my current romantic partner. And we were actually speaking about it a few days back, how I... I'm almost holding back on saying anything that I really think or that I really desire because I'm being more loyal to the equation that's gonna that makes me feel like I'm I'm gonna receive their love rather than being honest about where I am and what I feel. And so that's conditional love. But then sharing about that pattern with my partner and saying, hey, I'm seeing this and I'm seeing how I'm trying to control the situation and how I'm not being honest with you. That's already a first step towards ultimate love. The second step is to then look into that side of myself that is using that strategy to receive love and to ask her what she needs. And from her answer to be the one to give her what she needs. And then when I am feeling more full and more safe in my own presence and holding myself, then I can go back towards my partner and say, hey, okay, this is what I want. This is what I desire. This is what I see. This is what I'm scared of. And being more loyal to truth and to the love and the space between us than to a strategy that has given me love in the past. I see. So a step you can take from going from conditional love to ultimate love is when you first to notice when you strategize to get validation from the other person Mm -hmm. um, and then going back to yourself and giving 
what you need to yourself and then going back to your partner from that place and then instead of instead of strategizing i think that's a that's a long journey self-love it sounds so easy mm-hmm. right but it's not yeah. uh, it's, it's not easy but thank you for that uh additional uh, comment on on love mm-hmm. and that 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 um when i listen to you you seem to be someone that thinks deeply about some topics in life and love and 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 that so i'm curious um do you know what your purpose in life is what's coming up right now and it has a different phrasing every day um but it's to use my my words and my presence to inspire others to come home to themselves that's beautiful so you're using your words and your presence to inspire others to come home in themselves Mm. that's that's a beautiful uh, uh, purpose and how are you currently uh, manifesting that uh, purpose because you you have a, a coaching practice so how do you translate this purpose and all your experiences to to an offering for people yeah um so one way is just by having deep conversations with everyone and anybody that i encounter <laughs> um, <laughs> of course who consents to having a deep conversation that's one thing i've had to learn of not everyone wants to dive deep into um <laughs> the most existential questions of life um and so that's been part of my journey as well to honor other people's boundaries around that um so yeah i just love having conversations with strangers and people that i meet um And then, yeah, I have my coaching practice. So I work at the moment mostly on a one-to-one basis with people. And so I curate a whole journey for them where we have coaching sessions, uh, where we dive deep into different topics. Um, And then there is ongoing support between sessions. I create practices for them. So sometimes that's meditation. Sometimes that's embodiment practices. Um, and I share with them resources and podcast episodes and books uh, that support them on their journey. Um, and the project that I've just launched, that's now it's in, pi- in its pilot phase, is called the Inner Compass. And so that's a program that's all about supporting people uh, in finding that um, inner compass, that inner truth. Uh, that place where they can be in deep alignment with their values, with their uh, principles, with their desires, with what they care about, but also to dare to show up in every part of their life in their full expression. So in their work, in their relationships, in their um, home life, to really dare to be um, all that uh, they, they contain. And I mostly work with high achievers. Um, So people who, like me, are very good at ticking boxes, are very good at understanding what the world expects of them and have uh, experienced a lot of success and achievements. And I start working with them um, usually at a point where they start realizing that 
all these achievements have brought them a lot of um, success and satisfaction, but hasn't brought them the lasting fulfillment that they thought uh, they would find. And so together we kind of unravel the models that they have set in place of what it is to live a good life, of what it is to uh, be successful. And we create a new map of what's possible, um, getting deep into their priorities and their values and their desires. And um, I have a question about that. So you're also a somatic mm -hmm. coach and uh, mm -hmm. body awareness is part of that. So what role does the body play in this inner compass program mm -hmm. or bringing people home? What, what your purpose is? Yes. Um, so I love working with the body, uh, mostly become, because I come from a place um, and an education that was very mindy. And so I've been trained to have a very sharp and analytical mind. Uh, you can give me any topic and I'm going to do research about it and I'm going to have an opinion in the space of 30 minutes and uh, have a pro and con argument for every piece of it. And I tend to work with people who also are, have a very strong mind, a very sharp mind. And what I found is that the mind is very good at telling stories The mind is very good at uh, shaping reality in a way that fits that story. But the mind is also very good at staying stuck in a story, staying stuck in a pattern. And in my own experience, the way out of the mind and out of that stuckness is not with more mind, but through the body. Almost by short, uh, shortcutting the circuit, by bringing the attention back to the body, the sensations, and listening to the wisdom that is in the body. And so that might sound very woo-woo at, at first, but actually it's as simple as just looking into the repetitive patterns that we have in the body. So for example, if we're speaking about a conflict between two people, so they're in a relationship, they keep on having that same argument and their minds almost have the, the lines ready of like, A says this and this, you haven't done this, you haven't done this. And B says, yeah, but you haven't done this and you haven't done that. And they have the same lines and they have the same argument over and over again with slight modifications. If we bring in the mind, it's just going to tell me that story. Now I can ask some sharp questions that are going to go a little bit into, into inquiry. But what I found really powerful is to go and ask the body, how does the body feel when that interaction is going on? What parts of the body are, are tense? And what, what happens when we go into the body is we actually act as a much more vulnerable um, space, but also a space that has a lot less concepts around it. And so there's, we were speaking about the innocence of sexual energy. Here it's the innocence of the body. It's like the body tells the story. So partner A may feel like when they're having this argument, their shoulders collapse and their belly goes inwards and their uh, forehead frowns and their fists are clenched. And so we start looking into that shape. They take this shape when we're having our, our conversation. And I'm asking that shape, what does this shape feel? How old is this shape? 
And often we can, through the body, then access a memory that they had from when they were five years old and they were being told off by their parent. And they would, they learn to take up this shape to protect themselves. And so the body is often the bridge to a deeper realm, a less conceptual realm, a realm that has less um, connotation, that is more innocent and therefore a lot more wise. Wow, that's very, um, very powerful. Yeah, I, I sometimes notice that my body tells me something that my mind doesn't <laughs> want to believe it or my mind has other plans. Mm. So I'm in the process of, of trusting my, my body more. Mm. Um, well, the Inner Compass uh, coaching program, that sounds very exciting. And where do you want to go towards in the future? Do you have a certain vision? Mm. What type of uh, a coach? Uh, I mean, you're, you are already, but in what direction do you want to grow yourself? Mm. Um, well, speaking to what I shared about, I want to use my my words and and presence um, to support people in coming home to themselves. Uh, I definitely want to go more into using those words, into giving more um, talks and um, sharing to wider audiences. Because I notice that sometimes there's some frustration in me of only working with a few clients at a time. So there's a desire to, to expand uh, the number of people that I speak to. Um, in terms of the coaching, so I'm now piloting this program um, that is then going to become one of the signature programs within my business. Um, and I'm also seeing um, in a second time uh, group programs that I'm going to be creating. So this is a one-to-one -one at the moment, and I see uh, the same as we saw at, at Pachamama the power of community and the power of having like-minded people and people who are in similar stages in their lives supporting each other. And so that's something that I really want to grow into. Is to uh, so I, I do a lot of group work, but more on a on an individual like on a uh, workshop basis rather than a whole program and so that's um yeah when i want to bring more in into the world oh yes. these are beautiful um beautiful plants and um the soul kitchen is uh it's a kitchen for the soul where you can find recipes for life mm -hmm. so if you had to summarize all of your experiences in life <laughs> and your wisdom what is a recipe that you can give to the to the listener mm. What comes up is actually just one ingredient and the ingredient is trust. <laughs> and it's a recipe for living with an open heart. And of course, <laughs> there's a lot of sub ingredients within the ingredient of trust. There's the ingredient of getting support. There's the ingredient of challenging your thoughts and beliefs and not taking everything that happens in the mind as true there's community um but mostly there's finding practices and tools and support systems that allow you to really feel like you're coming in connection with yourself 
And so one thing that, that I do a lot at the moment is just place one hand on my heart and one hand on my belly. And I see, I used to see my inner skeptic laugh at me when I did that. But the reality is when I do this, and Jasper, if you want to do it as well, mm-hmm. placing one hand on your chest, one hand on your belly, and really bringing the attention to those contact points, the warmth between the hand and the chest, and the chest, the warmth between the other hand and the belly, and really feeling that presence, the incredible power that exists when we gift presence to ourselves. And we stop paying attention to everything around us and instead bring that attention to our bodies, to our hearts, to our bellies, to all the ideas that are bubbling up inside of us. And noticing how quite naturally, the more we ground in ourselves, the easier it is to trust the world. Because we're not looking for anything. Everything we're looking for is already here. And then life can be an expression of that of that grounding, of that joy, of that love, of that trust. Thank you. Thank you for this uh, meditation and this uh, this recipe. <laughs> I really enjoyed uh, talking with you. I learned so much. It was incredible. Mm. And um, yeah, thank you very much for sharing your wisdom thank you so much for having me jasper it was the light i feel like we went to so many different spaces um we traveled we, <laughs> we traveled, traveled. <laughs> we traveled in inner and outer spaces i think it was perfect mm. and thank you to everyone for uh, for listening i hope to uh, see you soon and um yeah if you feel you want to know more about silva feel free to check out her uh, her website yeah, you can find me on my website. That's silbastaffler.com, S-I-L-B-A-S-T-A-F-L-E-R.com or on Instagram, also silbastaffler, S-I-L-B-A-S-T-A-F-L-E-R. And message me. I love questions. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. See you later. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.